Well, I'm glad to be here to share some time during homecoming week and spiritual emphasis week to return to Sterling College. On Wednesday, it was my youngest uh, child, my son Ezra's ninth birthday, and so we came for an official college visit for him. Uh, Hopefully, he can go down maybe in the history books as the youngest person to visit a college campus for official visit. Uh, But he told me on the way out, okay, keep in mind, he's never been to another college before. But he said, Dad, I think I'm just going to come to Sterling College. I just love these small local colleges. I think this is the way to go. And so you can go ahead and sign me up to be a student of Sterling College. So if someone from admissions is here, you can get the, um, the early credit, I guess, the early sale if you want to send us some um, admissions paperwork. Um, man, part of the agreement of going to that movie was to keep it in the vault forever, Paul. So you just totally outed that. I hope I don't get in trouble for something like that. I, could, I just kind of envisioned some parent from, that, uh, from a student from that class going, I paid what so that my student could do what during class time? And so but that was a, a fantastic time to learn together. Uh, let me start share a story of perhaps one of the most fascinating things I've, I've experienced and heard about during uh, COVID-19. Um, earlier this spring, as the city of Jerusalem was mitigating the COVID-19 cri- uh, crisis, they decided to direct all positive patients to be in quarantine, to be stuck in quarantine in the hotels in the city of Jerusalem. And they thought this is the best way to mitigate it so that everybody can get over it and everyone else can stay at home and stay at home orders and then they can move on with their lives. And uh, people were a little bit uh, timid about this. If you know anything about the city of Jerusalem, you know that it is a place full of divisions. Um, Certain people from different races and nationalities, religions, they live in different parts of the city and different quarters. Uh, Someone once said this about the city of Jerusalem. You're not really known in the city of Jerusalem. You're kind of sorted into different groups in the city of Jerusalem. And so as people from a Muslim background, a Jewish background, an atheistic background, and then, you know, a secular background, they were young and old. They're all put together in hotels. People are a little worried about this because tensions regularly boil over in that city. Imagine what would take place when these folks have to live side by side with one another. But they became an internet sensation, and one of those particular hotels um, caught everyone's attention. They called it Hotel Corona, and people were posting videos on Instagram and all the different social media outlets because as everyone else was behind masks and in their homes cloistered up, these folks, because they already had the virus, they were like doing, I don't know, yoga and stuff on the rooftops, and they were enjoying some communal time and space together. What was so surprising is the people who lived apart from one another were actually getting along rather well as they lived inside the hotel together. But it wasn't easy. In fact, uh, there was a long intake process, and Baruch, the manager of this one particular hotel, he had to learn the hard way of who to put in rooms with one another. Uh, For instance, he had a couple of elderly gentlemen who uh, claimed that they had a Jewish faith, came into his doors on the same day, so he thought, okay, I'll put these two in the same room. And then uh, a couple hours later, he heard a rumor that there were some arguments happening from that room because one of them was an Orthodox Jew and one was a ultra-Orthodox Jew, and they were arguing on whether they could watch TV on the Sabbath or not. And so this big argument was uh, erupting in the middle of the room. I can just imagine the scene, a couple of guys like standing by the TV and one turning it off and the other one turning it on and yelling at one another in loud voices. Um, People, as they heard about the government making this move, said to themselves, how is this going to work? How is this going to work when conflict is so lived in to our average everyday existence. 
Maybe you've been there before. Maybe you've been like on a work team before. Uh, maybe it's a project in school or maybe it's in a, an office space and you know that people don't get along with one another because of maybe their political views or their sports team's affiliations or whatever it might be. But you've been tasked to work on a project together and you think to yourself, how are we going to prevent uh, disagreements boiling over again and again. Or maybe it's a family issue and you've seen that email go out to all your family members and you want to make plans to get together during Thanksgiving and you just know that because there was a blow up the last time y'all got together, there's a good chance it's going to happen again. And so you, say, so you say to yourself, how is this going to work? How are we going to get along with one another? Or maybe you've been on a sports team and you, you typically love your teammates, but perhaps this is kind of like the malaise of the middle of the season. Perhaps there's been a couple of losses in a row, and it seems like every single thing that one of your teammates do, whether it's in the practice of the locker room or in the van ride, it's like, oh man, I'm so annoyed with this person right now. And you think to yourself, how are we going to get along with one another? How is this going to work? This seems to be a lived-in issue for all of human experiences. We can't just be closer with people that we totally agree with. And so if we're going to move forward and if we're going to progress as a society and as a college and as a, a team and as a family and as a church even, we have to learn the soft skills of getting along with one another and having unity even in the midst of disagreements. This seemed to be the major issue in the New Testament. As we look at the book of Acts from the New Testament, the story of the early church, that same question, how is this going to work, is on the surface of all of their interactions. What we see as we go through just a cursory glance of the book of Acts is that the church was courageous enough to face their differences and to get over them. For instance, in Acts chapter 2, when the church begins, the followers of Jesus are hiding in an upper room during one of their festivals. They have been known to be in league with Jesus, who was just crucified a couple of months before. And so they're hiding because it's dangerous to be in the streets. But the book of Acts tells us that the Holy Spirit comes upon that meeting and they begin to praise God in various forms of languages and therefore people on the outside of the room begin to hear them praising God and they, wonder, they want to know what's all this commotion. And so the dividing wall between being in secret and being out in the open is removed and God ushers his people out into the open to be witnesses to, for Jesus Christ. And we go a little bit further in the book of Acts. We go to a place like Acts chapter 6. We notice another division within the middle of the church. Uh, there's a situation that arises one day. As uh, the different food is being distributed to different widows in the church, there's a couple of different groups there. There's the Hebraic Jewish widows, and there's the Hellenistic Jewish widows. Now, that doesn't sound uh, uh, very spicy there, but that's actually a bitter disagreement between these two groups of people. Because a couple of hundred years before this, Greek culture began to infiltrate the Jewish world, and people were making decisions. Do we resist this progress of culture, this new language, these new customs, or do we embrace it for the sake of our survival? It's a similar temptation. It's a similar issue that we find in our communities today. And so there was a certain group of people at that time who said, we need to resist everything that comes from the Greek culture. But then there's another group of people who are saying, what's the harm in updating our language and sending our kids to different schools and uh, opening up our eyes to different thinkers and uh, ways of thought out there? And so there's been this bitter rivalry between one another for a couple hundred years, and it's boiling over in the middle of the church. And it appears like the Jewish, the Hebraic Jews among them are being snobs towards the Hellenistic Jews among them. So that when food distribution is being given to the widows of the church, they're only giving food to the Hebraic Jews, and they're skipping over 
the Hellenistic Jewish widows. They go without food. So this issue is brought to the leaders of the church, and they have a decision to make. Do we continue to kind of go on with it, and maybe next week there's going to be more food to distribute? Or do we find a way to make sure that everyone is well-fed? And so they decide to implode their leadership structure and say, inside this church, no one's going to go without, regardless of where they, what language they speak or where they come from or the decisions that their parents made or that they've made. If they're part of the body of Christ, they're going to be provided for. So they decided to raise up a new leader within the church called deacons, which is simply a waiter or a waitress. And so as the apostles were out preaching and teaching in the streets, these deacons were going, it seems, from house to house, gathering as much food as possible so that no one would go without and there was a dividing wall that was removed in the midst of the church that day. It'll go, go a little bit further in the Acts chapter 6, and it says that because of this outward display of generosity towards all people, Luke says, who wrote the book of Acts, he says that many priests began to put their trust in Jesus. Now, once again, that doesn't sound very dangerous, but keep in mind the timeline here. Just months before, these same priests were the ones who were approving the arrest and the arraignment and the crucifixion of Jesus. They felt like it was faithfulness to God to get rid of people like Jesus. But because they saw the generosity of the church, they decided to not resist the teaching of Jesus any longer, but to embrace the teaching of Jesus. Therefore, this dividing wall between the priestly class and the common class was eroded. Even archaeologists would say today that if we go back to the original Jerusalem about this time in the first century, the priests lived so close to the Temple Mount they didn't have to walk into the common streets with all the common people. They lived in places where they could take their own secret pathways to the temple so they didn't have to associate with the common people. But in the church, there was a different expression in love. Instead of being deciding to be separate from one another and segregated from one another, the priests decided to remove their privilege in order to dwell with all people in the midst of the church so that another dividing wall is broken through in this early story. We go to Acts chapter 8, and there's this, this uh, instance where the church is united in another way between Jews and Samaritans. Now, Jews and Samaritans were lived in enemies with one another. To put it in a more common term, think of Jews like Boston Red Sox fans and think of Samaritans as New York Yankees fans. I mean, for generation after generation, they were told to hate one another. And I can imagine the parents of some six or eight-year-olds saying, you should hate Samaritans, never trust them, never associate with them. And these six or eight-year-olds say, well, why? And they would say something like, don't ask me why, just do what I say. And so for generation after generation, Jews grew up hating Samaritans, and Samaritans grew up hating Jews, and really hardly any rationale was provided. But in Acts chapter 8, the gospel goes from what is a Jewish-centered church to Samaritan seekers, and the Jews in the church have a decision to make. Do we continue to rehearse this rivalry and hatred for Samaritans, or do we embrace them like a brother or a sister? And they decide to defy the conventional wisdom and the patterns of behavior for generations, and they consider themselves equal with one another in the life of the church. You go to Acts chapter 9, and there's a notorious persecutor of the early church. His name is Saul of Tarsus. We call him uh, the Apostle Paul in the uh, church history. 
And he was going from place to place because he believed that the church was in error. And so he was breathing out murderous threats against the church. He would go from place to place and he would arrest people. He would remove moms and dads from their children in their homes because he felt like they were lawbreakers and dangerous to his community. But something happened to him as he was on one of these errands trying to arrest Christians. He had an encounter with the risen Jesus on a road to Damascus and his life completely changes. His perspective of who these people are completely changed. But the church is still scared to death of him, thinking that he's just lying to them so that he can infiltrate their ranks and arrest more of them. And so as he tries to enter the church, everyone is understandably backing away from him in terror of what he might be able to do. But the book of Acts tells us that as everyone else is backing away, a man named Barnabas steps forward. It is the courageous thing of embracing him like a brother. And he brings him into the church community. So even in a dividing wall between the persecutor and the persecuted is pushed through for the sake of the unity of the church and for the sake of the gospel. I think if the author of the book of Acts, if Luke is trying to make a subtle statement in these first nine chapters, it's simply this, that, the, that making, he's making his point clear that the Christian is led to push through social barriers in order to be good news. We could put it this way. Nothing within my Christian spirituality or your Christian spirituality would cause us to be partisan. Other entities and other systems might convince us to be partisan by including some and excluding others. But the Christianity that's working deep within us, the Christian spirituality that's trying to form and to transform us, is convincing us that partisanship, being divided, doesn't belong in the kingdom of God. But there's one major barrier up until this point that needs to be crossed. There's a group of people that the biblical voice calls Gentiles, it's simply a junk drawer term for everyone else. You've got your Jewish people, you have your Samaritan people, and then there's the Gentiles. Uh, I spent some time in the South uh, as a pastor in Atlanta, and I learned a term there. They say y'all if it's just one person or two persons, but like in a room like this, it's all y'all. And so in the biblical voice, whenever you see Gentiles, think it's all the rest of y'all, all y'all that are left over. There's still a dividing wall between the church and the Gentiles. And the person to confront this dividing wall is the major leader within the church himself. Because deep within, he's got this indifference towards these people. His name is Peter, and we meet him in Acts chapter 10 once again. And right before we see him in Acts chapter 10, there's a man named Cornelius, who's a war hero. He also spends time in the morning praying and giving to the poor. And as Cornelius is praying, God tells him to go, have some men go to a town called Joppa and to find a man there named Peter so that he can come spend time at Cornelius' house. So Cornelius wakes up, and he decides to uh, send some men to Joppa so that they can bring Peter over to his city. The very next day, Peter is praying on a rooftop, because why not? If you can pray on a rooftop, it's a pretty good place to pray. And as he's there, a vision opens before his eyes. And it's a vision of a large bed sheet with all these unclean animals. See, for a guy like Peter who's Jewish, there were certain animals that he could eat, 
uh, that, that make use at the dinner table. And there were some animals that they were told to avoid in order to be a distinct people. And so for his whole life, his mom, his dad, his rabbis, and everyone else said, you can eat these types of animals, but you have to refrain from these types of animals. Well, in his vision, the unclean animals are brought before his eyes and a booming voice from heaven tells him, Peter, get up, kill, and eat. And of course he is stunned. He doesn't believe this. In fact, Luke is, Luke is clear about this. He says, God had to give him this vision three times in order for P- Peter to get the message. Now, I'm a dad. Anytime you have to repeat something to your kids, it's because they're resisting the first couple of times, the first couple of hundred times. So here's Peter. He's, something is pushing against his hard categories of what is right and what is wrong. He resists. But as he's trying to put all the pieces together, the men from Cornelius' house come and they whisk him away to Joppa. And there Peter begins to meet with Cornelius and he actually articulates the dividing wall between Jews and Gentiles. It says this in Acts chapter 10, verse 28. Peter said to them, including Cornelius, you are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate or even visit a Gentile. So Peter acknowledges it. There's been a long custom, a way that we've governed ourselves for generations. If we want to please our God, if we want to please our mom as we don't, come and associate with you people. But notice what Peter says. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. As they continue to have their conversation in this story, Peter says something that he might announce with some anxiety without any precedent before this moment. Peter says something stunning. In verses 34 and 35, it says this, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. I want us to focus on the idea of I now realize. This is not something that Peter has known before. We use that term now to to represent like a lineage of a change of our thought, right? Uh, For instance, one day I was hungry and I went to Arby's and there was a sign that said five roast beef sandwiches for $5.55. I thought to myself, man, I want to lose money on this deal. I'm going to get that. But I didn't have the appetite for five roast beef sandwiches that day, so I took them home and I had like a couple of leftover. And so like the later that day, I thought, well, I'll, just, I'll have another one or two of these for my dinner. And I just kind of took it in its foil and everything from the refrigerator. I put it in the microwave, put it on for a minute to heat it up, turned around to get a Gatorade or something out of the refrigerator. I turned back to the microwave. The microwave is nearly on fire at this moment. And I said to myself, oh, I now realize that you can't put foil in a microwave. We might say something like this. I now realize that when my significant other says they're not angry or upset, they're just tired, that they're actually not tired, they're really angry or upset. Um, Or maybe you say it like this way. I now realize that when your friend who loves the office learns that you like the office as well, they will send you an office meme every single day for the remainder of your friendship. I now realize that. Didn't know that before. You might say this as you're scrolling through Facebook or Instagram. I now realize that when somebody takes a video of themselves from the front seat of their car so they can give some sort of rant about some sort of issue out there, 
that it may not be the best use of my time to watch it all the way through. I realize that now. Didn't know that before. I know that now. Peter didn't realize this before. Perhaps he was blind to his blindness. He didn't realize how his embedded ideology of this group of people was getting in the way of what God wanted to do in the world. And it took an open vision It took an experience at Cornelius' house for him to realize that he needed to change his mind. I think what happened to Peter here is something that we call empathy, and we use empathy a lot in our culture, and so we might define it in different ways, but for the morning, I want to define it like this. Empathy is simply the opportunity and the willingness to merge with another life, someone who's not quite like you or quite like me. It's being willing to not just have our own preferences in mind, but to, to embrace the, the preferences of someone completely different from us. And I think this is what's happening to Peter as he, as he has a conversation with Cornelius, that he has, Peter has a love for his own people. He wants to see God do something amidst his own community, but in some mystery, in some strange way because of the mercy of God, another chamber has grown in Peter's heart. And God has filled it with love, not just for his own people, but he's filled it with love for people from a different community. And it causes him to have his mind open and for his life to be transformed. Which brings us back to Hotel Corona back in the city of Jerusalem. Because although there's all this anxiety about all these people living side by side with one another who usually didn't get along with one another in the streets of Jerusalem before, What was happening again and again is this honest confession from the people who are living inside Hotel Corona that for whatever reason, against all odds, we're actually getting along here. That's why people were tuning in like it was the most popular reality TV show this last spring because they could not imagine, they could not quite put the math together how these people who used to be so divided are actually getting along with one another and some miracles are happening in the midst of this temporary and makeshift community. For instance, there's a story in the middle of Hotel Corona where there's a young Bedouin Muslim girl who turned the corner one day and she saw an elderly man on the floor who seemed to be laboring with his breath. And the closer she got to him, she realized that he wasn't a Muslim man, that he was a Jewish man, and both of them were told from their families of origin that you should not get close to or associate with the other. So she was 10 feet away from him, and she was his only hope. If she was going to help this man and to help him try to get get his breath back or get some help in order to give him some medical attention, it wasn't just crossing 10 feet of literal space. It was also going to be crossing years of rehearsed indifference for one another. Crossing through barriers of religious difference. Crossing through generation after generation of verbal and physical abuse that were lodged in each of their communities. If she was going to have to help him, if she was going to help him, she would have to cross through all these difficult barriers in order to do so. And she did. She knelt down before him. And maybe for the first time in a long, long time, someone from a different religion was able to care for this man. And it brought him to a place where he caught his breath. Medical attention came and nursed him back to health. But something even greater happened that day. This young girl, she was meditating on this experience, had an inward transformation. She said to herself, what I want to do when I leave here is to go to medical school to get a nursing license, to go to our hospitals and help anyone who comes through that door. 
It's a miracle. But perhaps the greatest challenge of Hotel Corona that spring was the celebration of the Passover. Passover is the high holiday for the Jewish people. It's like the Super Bowl and uh, Black Friday and Easter and Christmas all rolled into one. It's a sacred moment. It's when they remember the time when God came and delivered his people from Egypt with his mighty hand and his outstretched arm, and he led them and he delivered them into the promised land. It's so sacred, just like anything else that we have sacred in our lives, we tend to put a lot of rules around it in order to protect its sanctity. And so some of those who were a little more uh, thorough in their Judaism went to Baruch, the hotel manager, and said, listen, we're all having a good time here, yes, but the Seder is something completely different. We don't want any cell phones or any funny business during the Passover, so if you could please cater to our needs this one time. In the banquet hall, we ask that you put a dividing wall between two tables. And on one of the tables, those of us who are a little more thorough and orthodox in our faith, we can have our quiet, subdued, and cell phone-less celebration of the Passover. And anyone else can have the Passover on the other side of that wall. They could use their cell phones. They could be loud and crazy. They don't have to do all the things that we do in our official function in order of the Passover. And so they made plans for it. They brought in a dividing wall. They put two tables there. And as people were making their way down to the banquet hall that night to enjoy the Passover together, and they saw the wall, they were crushed, absolutely devastated. They had experienced all this great friendship before, and it seemed like all of it was undermined by this image of a dividing wall. And so some of the younger, more spirited types were trying to move that wall, but they couldn't move it because it was way too heavy. And so a few others began to join them, and they began to inch the wall. And just about the time they got momentum in moving the barrier, one, someone, someone from the ultra-Orthodox Jewish camp who suggested the, the two tables began to walk towards them, and everyone saw it in slow motion that this person was going to come, blow the whistle, throw the flag, and make sure the wall stayed in its place. They were thoroughly surprised when he joined them in pushing the wall to the edge of the room. They pushed the two tables together to form one large table. And all 200 residents of Hotel Corona, all different ages, different religions, different enthusiasm in applying their religious beliefs, enjoyed the Passover meal together. This is what the author of the story, where this came from, Gregory Warner, this is what he said as he closed in his comments about Hotel Corona. He said, I once interviewed a reality TV show producer who confessed just how hard it is to get people to fight enough to keep it interesting. He said, you have to cast characters and exploit the right moments, stoke the conflict because people, he says, as individuals are frustratingly good at getting along. What an amazing thought frustratingly good at getting along. I wonder if you and I would conclude that with the sum of our human experience. But if 200 people from conflict-ridden Jerusalem forced to live together in order to overcome the COVID-19 pandemic can overcome all of their barriers, all of their differences, 
all of their lack of empathy in their former lives for the different people that they were associated with, if they can learn, if they can make changes, imagine the body of Christ. Imagine the body of Christ who prays to a Savior who is called the Prince of Peace. Imagine the church who continues to follow our Master who even when he was arraigned and crucified and his opponents were heaping shame on him on Good Friday, said, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. Imagine the body of Christ who, when that risen Savior confronts his disciples who left him to die all alone at the cross and he faced them after his resurrection instead of saying, I told you so, you guys, are, you guys let me down in your failures, instead said, Peace be with you. Receive the gift of eternal life that I can give you. Imagine what might be at stake for us. What if the governing assumption for Christians is that we are frustratingly good at getting along with one another? What if people say, yeah, we try to lure them into divisions and conflicts and fights all the time, and they resist it all the time. They're so frustratingly good at getting along with one another. Imagine what might happen if that could be the case. If we're going to get there, we have to excel in empathy. And I've got a simple formula for empathy today. The first thing is more sweat stains. To be a person who's an empathetic person, you have to have sweat stains. What I mean by this is it comes from a story that I've heard about a guy who's trained to be a therapist. And part of his licensure, he had to shadow another ther- a therapist in order to learn from them in their practical uh, field. And so he would sit in in the counseling session with this therapist, and he, re- he kind of noticed that every time that this guy would do therapy with a client, he would sweat profusely from beginning to end of the appointment. And it was kind of embarrassing to watch because he would get these large sweat stains. And for whatever reason, he wore blue shirts so that just kind of showed up even more vividly. He was always wiping his brow. And so after about four or five days of this, the guy in training said, what's the deal with all the sweating? Like, do we need to turn the thermostat down? I mean, what, what is going on here? And the therapist said, well, I'm kind of shy to say this. But the reason I sweat so much is because this is really excruciating work. Because even though they've come to me for help, I feel like the best thing that I can do as a therapist is to leave my body and my brain and my experience behind and try my best to embody the person who's in my office. I try to enter into their story. I try to enter into their life. I try to understand their experiences. But I can't stay there because they've come to me for help. So I've got to jump from there, from that place of trying to affiliate with them. And I've got to try to put on my own body and my own mind and my own experience again so I can give them a word of advice. But as that advice is kind of floating in the air, I try to get back into their body and into their brain and into their experience in order to receive it like they receive it so I can offer a follow-up if something is quite not clear. And this transfer of going back and forth is excruciating work. But it's the only way I know how to do this job effectively. For you and I to excel in the grace of empathy, we need to follow the formula that comes from our brother James in the book of James in the New Testament. He says we need to be slow to speak, slow to become angry, and quick to listen. And in doing so, we'll embrace and increase in the grace of empathy. It takes more sweat stains, but it also takes less keystrokes. 
Sherry Turkle, who's a sociologist, has concluded with all of her research and study, she has found that the more time that we spend on social media, the less likely we are to show empathy. There's a straight line between those two realities. But this has actually surprised people who've watched the internet from its very inception. Because those who pioneered the internet, they said that it's actually going to increase empathy among our communities. Because we'd be able to just with a Google search go across the world or even to like the International Space Station and see things from a different vantage point, to learn other stories, to hear marginalized voices in a greater rate in order to open up our minds. And that certainly has been the case. We have been able to key into other people's experiences. But I think the adverse is also true. We have found with the internet more efficient ways of ruining somebody's life, of reducing them, with a couple of tweets, of canceling them. Sorry, it's like got this fly going around here, like Mike Pence. Anyways, um, we've been able to, just with a couple of keystrokes, lifelessly hide behind a keyboard and reduce somebody on the other end. What we need to clue into, if we're going to have any hope for getting beyond all of our divisions, is to be careful how we use the technology, this gift that we've been given. Because at the end of the day, technology is just a tool. It doesn't have a life of its own. It's like a hammer. A hammer is waiting to be used. It can either build something, if that's what's in our intent of using it, or it can harm somebody if we use it as a weapon. Kester Bruin, who has talked about technology and the way that it shapes us, he says technology is a psychedelic It reveals the soul. It's waiting to be moved. It's waiting to be directed. So the hate, the indifference, the snark, it's not inside the box of our technology. It's inside the soul of the one who holds it in its hands. So brothers and sisters, the watching world who is exhausted by all the fighting that they see in our culture. They are longing for a community who will show empathy over the anger. And who knows? They just might see it in the body of Christ. The body of Christ, the church, just like we've seen in the book of Acts and the life of Peter, just might be the empathy gem that people crave in order to find a better way. I'll close with the story of one of my favorite leaders of church history. His name is John of Kronstadt. He was a priest in a Russian town that had a rampant alcoholism, particularly among the heads of house, the male heads of households in the village. These men had such a hard life. In order to cope with it, they, they were seen as failures in their workplace and failures at home. And so instead of raising their families, they would go to the local tavern and they would drink everything that they've made in the mines earlier that day. And so it was not uncommon for the streets to be filled with these men passed out because of all that they had consumed in the tavern the night before. And he's the priest of the town, and he's got a decision to make. How do I address this issue that's holding my village in contempt and in harm? He had a couple different options. Option number one was to use his pulpit like a bully pulpit, to accuse and to slander and to preach hellfire against these individuals. He could have done that. Others were doing that. 
But John of Cronstadt, what he did is he would go pick these grown men up like kids. And as they were going in and out of consciousness, he would walk them home. And he would say, this is beneath you. You were created to house the glory of God. This is beneath you. You were called for something more. Brothers and sisters, we're going to be lured into accusation, rivalry, and envy, and slander that exists writ large in our culture today. I hope that you and I hear the voice of God say, this is beneath you. You were called to something more. And that more is the grace of empathy. And who knows, we might just see the world change around us.